few years ago, I spoke at Wheaton College and had the opportunity to be on campus there. And for the last three years, I've been going to a place called John Brown University in Salome Springs, Arkansas. One of the thrills of being on that university campus was the, the grandson of Dr. Marchant King, of which King Hall is named after him as a student there, and he came up to me and he talked about this institution with a great sense of joy and enthusiasm. This fall I'll be speaking good or bad at, at Azusa Pacific. Now, I mean, that's, that's okay, that's okay. I'll be speaking at Azusa Pacific uh, this fall doing a, a series of lectures there on uh, campus. And as I travel around the country and speak in different settings, let me say to you that I count this a, a very important and special joy uh, to be able to come home. One of the most difficult places sometimes to go is home, but I count it a joy uh, to be able to come home. I remember I was driving in, in Mississippi and I was going to a place called Birmingham, Alabama, and I was leaving Meridian, Mississippi, and I was driving along and I, and I wanted to listen to some music, so I turned the radio on. But let me tell you something, when you're driving through rural Mississippi and rural Alabama, what you can listen to, you don't have very many choices. And so I kept turning and I kept trying to get away from, from country western music. You see, my ears are not used to country western music. Now, if you like country western music, that's okay. Enjoy it. It's wonderful. It tells some fantastic stories. But my, my, ears, uh, my ears are not quite used to yet country western music. But on this day, I had no choice. I mean, I was out there in rural Mississippi and rural Alabama, and I had no choice. But you know, I was fascinated by a song that came on. And this song says, If heaven is not like Dixie, then I don't want to go. Now, that's what the song says. Now, when I kept listening to it, it kept saying over and over again, If heaven is not like Dixie, then I don't want to go. Now, in essence, the song meant that if heaven is not like the South, then I don't want to go. And I was saying, Lord, I'm so glad that, that heaven is not going to be like the South or Dixon. In other words, I might have some problems, Lord, as well, that I want to go. This morning, in our chapel time, I'd like to explore a subject. The subject is entitled, or at least the title of my message this morning is, Choosing to Love the Powerless. Choosing to Love the Powerless. And to begin the message, I'd like to read a poem that someone gave to me that, or at least I swiped it, borrowed it, or whichever you want to say. What can you say in a Christian institution? Borrow it. That sound Okay. I borrowed it. I haven't put my name to it inside a copyright, so I'm in good shape. I'm in good shape. The words of the poem are these. When I was lonely, you left me alone. The title of it is Hungry, Lonely, and Cold. It says, when I was lonely, you left me alone. When I was homeless, you preached to me about the shelter of God's love. When I was hungry, 
You formed a humanitarian club and you discussed my hunger. When I was naked, you debated the morality of my nakedness. When I was in prison, you quietly crept into your cellar in your den and you thanked God for your, you prayed for my release. When I was sick, you fell down on your knees and you thanked God for your health. You seemed so holy, so close to God, but I'm still hungry and I'm still lonely and I'm still cold. And I believe far beyond anything else that there are a lot of powerless individuals in our society. There are a lot of people out there who are powerless who are saying, I wish that I had somebody that would put me on their agenda. There are a lot of people out there that are powerless that are saying, I wish that I had somebody that would be concerned about me. I wish that somebody would somehow or another put me at the top of their list and the top of their priorities. There are those out there who are powerless. And when I think about the millions of people that are powerless around the world and somehow or another my focus wants to go to Africa, my focus wants to go to India, my focus wants to go to China, my focus wants, wants to go outside of the United States. When we think about poverty, when we think about injustice, when we think about hurting people, the first thing we think about are the starving people in Africa. And all of us want to talk about how in the world can I move from the United States and run to Africa and go into the bush country of Africa and try to dig people out of the bush country and try to share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And please, I think that we need to go to Africa. I think that we need to have a focus on India. I think that we need to have a focus on China. I think that we need to have a focus outside of America. But let me tell you something, that we live in a country where there are thousands and even millions of people who are powerless within our country, that we have to begin to rethink, God, how are you going to use me to dare to love the powerless? But you know something? We first have to understand how God loved us in our powerless state. For it says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That all of a sudden God commended His love toward us even though when we were powerless, caught up in our sin. And some of us like to categorize sin. Some of us like to think about sin in terms of those who are out there walking the streets and those who are drug addicts and those who are prostitutes and those who are alcoholics. And, and we like to somehow or another categorize sin. But let me tell you something, believers. You were, the Bible says here, that God commended His love toward us while we were yet sinners. Y'all got that? Y'all got that? While we were yet sinners. When we were yet powerless to come to God ourselves, when we were powerless individuals, the Bible says that God loved us so much that Jesus left the glories of heaven and came down to this earth to be powerful for us when He hung out on the cross. And He said it was finished. And when He said it was finished, He meant that every single human being could come to Him. But let me go back to the text here. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then we flip over to Ephesians and Ephesians says in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2 that we were without Christ. We were aliens. We were strangers of the covenant of the promise. We had no hope and without God in the world. That description is a description of every single one of us. 
No matter where we've come from and no matter where we are right now, that is a description of us as individuals. Then it says in verse 2 of that same chapter that our conversation in time past was in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and our mind, were by nature the children of wrath. And then Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says something exciting. And if I was in a shouting church today, and if you were shouting people, now I, that's not a judgment call, okay, please. Don't, don't do that. Okay. But if you were shouting people, this would be your cue. This would be it. This would be your cue to shout. Because it says in verse 4, but God. No matter what our state was, no matter who we are, no matter what our conditions, the Bible says, but God. And it says something about God. It says God being rich in mercy. We are supposed to be the representatives of God working in the world. How rich are we? Let me tell you something that we sometimes try to do. We try to fit people into nice little boxes. And we try to somehow or another say, we want to love this group of people. And so somebody come along and say, do you love everybody? We say, yes, we love everybody. You know what? Because we've created a nice little box and we've only put in that box those people that look like we want them to look, act like we want them to act, dress like we want them to dress, go to the same school we go to, live in the same community we live in, and the list goes on and on. And my question today, beloved, is what about the powerless? What about those who are trapped in inner cities? What about those that are trapped in, in, in poverty and injustice? What about those that somehow or another that nobody wants to go to who don't have anybody to stand up for them? They are powerless. Here's another verse that we would shout on if we, if we were shouting folks, okay? In verse 13 it says, uh, but now. Two important little phrases, little words, but now. The first one was, but God, being rich in mercy, that because of his great love for us, has loved us. And then the second one is, but now. Which means that relationship is changed for us. That now... We are brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Jesus has committed to us the power to become his sons and his daughters, his children. For it says in John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them gave him the power to become the sons of God. That God has committed himself to us in such a way that the powerless individuals as we've been, God has now given us power. But you know, I'm convinced that there are a lot of people in our society who don't feel that way. And because of that, I want us to focus on one illustrated story this morning. You have your Bibles turned to John chapter 8. And we want to take a closer look at a situation. For it says in John chapter 8, and, and beginning somewhere in, in verse 1 and following, and I want us to look at a, a powerless human being. And I want us to look at the great, wonderful, 
love of God reaching out to a powerless person. For it says in, 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 in this passage, it says that Jesus usually went to the temple to teach. Now he was there to teach in this chapter in verse 8. And he had been around crowds of people and, and crowds of people were coming all around him. And then verse 2 says, Jesus was sitting a very relaxed position, and he was teaching the people. People wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And he was teaching the people the Word of God. And then verse 3 said, this teaching was, session was interrupted by the arrival of the scribes and the Pharisees who were leading the Romans apprehended in adultery. We have to understand that the scribes were men who understood the letters of the law. The scribes were people who studied the law. They were qualified to teach the law. They could document everything they said. The scribes were experts in the law. Which means when the scribes brought you and said that you were guilty, you were guilty. They had somehow or another searched the laws and they had all the right answers. And one of the dynamic things about the scribes is that you and I as Christians, as we study in these hallow halls, we can become scribes. By scribes, I mean we have the right answers for every given situation until it hits us. We have answers to every given situation until we become the powerless. We have answers for every given situation because we learn how to become a bunch of fat folk taking in the Word of God and becoming like a sponge always taking in and always taking in. And the challenge is that God wants us to choose to love the, the powerless and go out and give it out. Because believe it, if we never give it out, we become like the scribe. And we have it all in. And we have all the right answers. They were ready. Let me tell you something. The Bible said the scribes went by themselves. You know how we do when we want to gang up on somebody. We go find somebody else. And we tell them what you want to do and we get them on our side. And we go find somebody and we're ready now. Because we're not by ourselves. You know how bad folk get in a crowd? You know, they're ready to throw, throw rocks and throw stones and say all this stuff and then... All of a sudden, you put them out there by themselves, they'd be ready to run. You see what I mean? The scribes brought the Pharisees with them. The Pharisees were pious ones, a social men, a group of men, zealous for religious acts, under the guidance of the scribes. They believed in the complete separation from non-Jews. Their attitude was the external, formal, and mechanical. They were there saying, right on, scribes, let's give it to them. We had the law with all of its power coming down on a person. And now in verse 3, it says, These scribes and these Pharisees were angered at Jesus' success and frustrated by their inability to get rid of him. And they had to think about, how in the world are we going to get rid of this Jesus? This Jesus is becoming so popular. Everybody want to follow Jesus. Look at the crowds. And they are not following us. Let's get rid of him. And they seized an opportunity to try to get rid of Jesus. 
In verse 4, they shared what the accusation was. Here is a woman that's been caught in the act of adultery. We have the witnesses. We know the facts. We want to present all the facts so that you can look at the facts and see the facts. And in verse 5, they reminded Jesus of the requirements of the law that talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 22 that anybody that's caught in the act of adultery should be stoned. On the one hand, believers, we had the powerful, the scribes, the Pharisees. On the other hand, you have the powerless, a woman caught in adultery. These leaders sought to somehow or another get a verdict from Jesus. And they were tempting Jesus by putting him in a dilemma, a dilemma situation. Listen to the dilemma. If he upheld the law, which was not being applied rigorously in such cases, he could be made to appear a heartless individual. That's one side. The second side is, if he somehow or another ignored the law, he was advocating mercy, he would be heralded as having no, to be too lenient and be viewed as not applying the law. Let's look at it a little deeper. For it says in verse 6, Jesus began to move, and Jesus began to dig deeper. For it says in verse 6 that Jesus stooped down to write. And oh, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of speculation as to what he was writing. There's a lot of speculation that, that he was writing something profound. There's a speculation that he was just drawing on the ground. There's a speculation that Jesus might have been saying, enough is enough. He might have been writing on their hard-hearted individuals. He might have been writing on their seek justice through non-cooperation. He could have been writing with his heart feeling grieved for the situation. It's not important what Jesus wrote on the ground. What's important was what was Jesus trying to teach. Jesus was trying to teach a sense of understanding that somebody in our society must choose to love a powerless individual who have no power to be loved within themselves. Somebody must choose to identify with a group of people in our society that nobody else will stand up for and identify with. Jesus was teaching that in this concept. So it says in verse 7, those of you who do not have any sin, if you do not have any sin in your life, what I want you to do is cast the first stone. And they kept talking. And they kept badgering. And then in verse 8, he ignored them again and he began to write. And he began to say again and again, if you have no sin, you cast the first stone. And then in verse 10, there's a quietness. And Jesus looked around. And guess what? It was only two people left. The two people who remained was a sinner and a friend of the sinner. Everybody else, gone. 
everybody else had disappeared because Jesus chose within that relationship to identify with a person who was powerless. And as he identified with this person who was powerless, Jesus began to, to somehow or another prick the heart and the conscience of those who were ready to stone her to death. Now, I want us to look at three other verses. One of them is one that, uh, that you're going to like. I say that, and now when you turn to the verse, you might not like it at all, but we'll see. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 11, I believe with all my heart that one of the groups of people in our society today that can be classified as powerless would be those who are poor in our society economically. Now I want you to categorize that in your mind. I believe that one of the groups of people in our society that can be classified as being powerless, it would be those who are poor economically. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 11, there's a familiar story. This story is talking about as Jesus was being anointed with this expensive oil. Somebody in the background, I think it must have been Judas, the guy who loved the money, was beginning to say, why are you wasting that oil on Jesus? Why don't you take that oil and, and sell it and, and get the money, and then you take the money and you go give it to the poor? That was the suggestion. Jesus turned around and said, the poor you have with you always, but you do not have me with you always. Very important verse, because that's the verse that as a Christian I have leaned on an awful lot in my early life. That's the kind of verse that you as members of, of Master's College can lean on. It's the kind of verse that identifies you as being spiritual. It's the kind of verse that identifies you with Jesus. And if you are identified with Jesus, you are identified as being spiritual. So spiritual people say, the poor you have with you always. Therefore, I do not have to put poor people on my agenda because even Jesus said, am I talking too loud? I don't want to scare nobody, am I? Am I talking too loud? Rose, you have to raise your hand or something. Can't know when a black man said I'm start talking loud, white folks get scared. Now, I, I, I don't want to scare nobody today. I, I got something I want to say, but I don't want to scare nobody. Y'all understand? Y'all understand? understand? All right. And so, those of us who, who really want to be super spiritual, we will tend to say, that, that Jesus even said that poor people are going to always be here, therefore it's okay for us not to put the poor on our agenda. You go and check out almost any church budget you want to check out, and you come back and find out how many church budgets have the poor in America on their budget. We're concerned about Africa. We're concerned about Asia. We're concerned about Latin America. But when we talk about the ghetto communities in this country, poor people are excluded from many of our church budgets because we want to be 
spiritual and say that Jesus even said that there are going to be poor people. Therefore, let me go to college and let me get me a degree and let me get me a job and let me teach Sunday school class and let me make some money to take care of the needs of my own personal family. And then we say, well, Lord, whenever I get enough, I'm going to help the poor. You know the biggest lie Satan ever sold us is that word enough? Because nobody ever defines enough but us. We keep changing the definition based upon our change in lifestyle. And then, you don't have to turn there because John chapter 12 verse 8 says the same thing. The poor you have with you always, and you don't have me with you always. And what we say is, let me just get around and I want to read the Word, and, and I want to get fat on the Word, and I want to know the Word of God. Because that's important. Because Jesus says, sit at my feet and learn me. And, and, and you're not going to always have me around, but, but learn me. But poor people you're going to always have around. But I'm so glad. For Mark chapter 14, verse 7. Because Mark chapter 14, verse 7 is the, is the verse that... that that I would shout on. I don't know about y'all shouting. I, you know, it's, it's the verse I'll shout on. I, it's okay. I'll shout on this verse. I don't have to, okay? Because in Mark chapter 14, verse 7, it says the same context that the poor you have with you always. And whenever you wish, you can do them good. Isn't that something? God is saying that we have a unique and wonderful opportunity to choose to love the powerless. And whenever we wish, we can do them good. And then he says, but, but you don't have me with you always. But let me tell you something. Deuteronomy didn't have that much mercy on us. For it says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, it says this, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you. Isn't that right? Let me see what that says again. Y'all make sure y'all write this one down. If you don't turn to it, write it down. You know why? Because you're going to say, that man from Mississippi said some stuff that ain't right. And you need to read this one. Because it says, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you. You should... You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Jesus is very clear. The scriptures are clear that there are a lot of powerless people in our society. And we have a wonderful and unique opportunity to choose. To love the powerless. I remember growing up in Mississippi, I grew up powerless. I grew up in a family of ten children. My father left home when I was four years old. I grew up powerless. I grew up living in a, in a three-room house, and, and it's one of those kind of homes that you can look down underneath the house and see the chickens and, and look out through the wall and see your neighbors. It was one of those kind of houses. And please understand, and I have to say this when I'm talking to a sophisticated audience like yours. 
Three rooms is literal. It's not three bedrooms. If I'd have meant three <laughs> no, that's okay. Let me leave y'all alone. Let me leave y'all alone. But a three-room house. We grew up in a three-room house, and, and, and all of a sudden I understood dreaming and, and looking at that situation, what it meant to be powerless. And as I understood my own powerlessness, one of the things I wanted to do was to get as far away from my powerlessness and everything that identified me with powerlessness, I wanted to get away from it. I became a Christian at age 17 under the ministry in Mendenhall, Mississippi. And after I became a Christian, I was disappointed because I still wanted to get out of Mississippi. You see, I had a very simple plan of life. Go to college, get an education, get a degree, get a job, get some money, and get out of Mississippi. That was my very simple plan of life. That was my plan of life. I was tired of being powerless. I wanted to just escape from my powerlessness. And all of a sudden, God gave me an opportunity to come here. An opportunity to go to a Christian liberal arts college, the opportunity to see some of my dreams begin to be fulfilled. And so when I boarded that bus in Jackson, Mississippi, and we went across the Mississippi River Bridge, and I looked back out the window, and there was a sign on the other side of the highway that said, Welcome to Mississippi. And the only thing I think about was, Bye bye, Mississippi, I'm gone. I'm gone. I mean, they're all kind of jokes that people tell about Mississippi. Many people say even God don't go to Mississippi. Now, that's a joke. I know that's one. Because God is everywhere. And he's involved in every community. And he just wants some bodies that he can live his life out through in those communities. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. And so I wanted to get away from there. Came out here, had the opportunity of being here in school. Went back during the summer of 1968, and I wanted to find a job, and there were no jobs for young black males in Mississippi, and that made me want to get out of there for sure at that time. Came back here and graduated in 1969, went on to the seminary, and during my first year of seminary, I was selected to go with a Christian basketball team to the Orient called Overseas Crusade Sports Ambassadors. I was playing ball in Taiwan. And as the kids began to follow me around, as the kids began to be attracted to my ministry, as the kids began to be attractive to what God was using me to do, the coach of the team, Norm Cook, said to me, Dolphus, why not consider becoming a missionary on the Overseas Crusade to Taiwan? And I said, Coach, let's pray about it and let's see what God has to say. And I remember as we prayed and as we talked about it, that six weeks and 60-some ball games later, we sat down and we talked. And I said, Coach, what God is saying to me, Dolphus, what are you doing 10,000 miles away from home? And there are people in rural Mississippi that are trapped. They are trapped in racism. They are trapped in ignorance. They are trapped in religion. They are trapped in poverty. And God began to lay it on my heart to go back to Mississippi. Because one of the overwhelming questions that God began to ask me is that, what's going to happen to them if you don't go back? And the question that, that we have to have our minds transformed in, believers, it's not to always ask the question, what's going to happen to me? Because many of us are fed, selfish, individualistic Christianity. And that Christianity is, what's going to happen to me? How can I get it for me? 
And every time a mission speaker come along and start talking about mission agencies and mission opportunities, one of the first questions we asked ourselves is what's going to happen to me? And what do I have to give up? And I'm here this morning to tell you that we need to change the question. We need to change the question. And the question ought not to be, what's going to happen to me? The question ought to be, what's going to happen to them? I distinctly remember the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. And, and, and we like to focus in on certain parts of the story. And I used to talk about how terrible the, the Levite was. And I used to talk about how terrible, you know, the, the priest was. Until I understood that the priest and the Levite are no different than you and I. They just asked the wrong question. The priest asked the question, what's going to happen to me if I stop? The guy might not be hurried. He could be faking it. <laughs> and if I stop, he's going to get me. The Levite asked the same question. But oh, I'm so glad for the Samaritan. Because Samaritan who had a right, an earthly right, please hear me believers, the Samaritan had an earthly right to leave the Jew there in his despair. But let me tell you something believers, what moved him was the word of God said he was moved with compassion. And compassion says that we change our thinking process. And to change our thinking process means that we take our eyes off our own selfish individual needs and we begin to transform those, those eyes to quit looking at ourselves and we begin to look at others. And we begin to ask questions like, what's going to happen to them if I don't choose to love them? What's going to happen to the powerless if I don't choose to love them? In 1970, my wife Rose and I got married, and in 1971, we moved back to Mendenhall, Mississippi, because we said to God, God, I choose to go back and love those individuals who are powerless. And I was in Marina Del Rey, somewhere down there. Somewhere out here. Is that out here somewhere? And uh, I met this guy, and I went to his house, and I was sitting down talking to him, and he was telling me about all the things he was doing, and he said to me, he said, Dolphus, what do you do? Now, you don't ask the preacher that question, but anyway, they asked me that question. And I told him about my heartfelt concern and what we were doing in Mississippi. And he said, Dolphus, you sound like an intelligent young man. He said, but you're a little crazy, aren't you? And from his point of reference, he was saying, Dolphus, you're crazy for choosing to identify with poor people because poor people don't deserve anybody to be looking out for them. And when I left his house, a hundred memories went through my mind as I thought about what God has been doing. And when we moved back to Mendenhall, Mississippi in 1971, we had a dream. And that dream was, is the gospel of Jesus Christ powerful enough to permeate the needs of a poor community and bring about change? That's the dream.
Or is the gospel, the only thing the gospel can do for poor people is to somehow or another tell them about going to heaven and tell them about the joys of the heaven and don't tell them about the joys of all the things that God wants to accomplish on this earth. You see, believers, there's a big gulf between the time we become a Christian and the time God takes us to heaven. There's a big gulf in between. And God has not called us out of the world to sit down and do nothing. He's called us out of the world to be active and involved in the process of change. As we reach out and love those who other people might not love. In Mendenhall, Mississippi today, God has raised up a Christian elementary school called Genesis 1 School. We have a thrift store and a farm and a community law office. We have a ministry to black pastors who never had the opportunity to go to a school like this or college or seminary. We have a ministry through a recreation and a radio ministry. We have a 14 different areas of ministry and a staff of 43 full-time staff people working with us. And there's some material about that ministry somewhere on a table here. And maybe you need to pick up some of that material that you can pray for us as we believe God to use us to reach out to the powerless in Mississippi. But guess what? Here's the good news. There are not just powerless people in Mississippi, but there are powerless people all around us. And Mendenhall Ministries has become a model an example of how that community can be reaching out and, and how the church can be involved in bringing people into the, the kingdom. There are opportunities, and let me share just a few. There are opportunities for teachers at Genesis 1 School. For those of you who are interested in elementary education, there are opportunities. You don't always have to go to Africa. You don't always have to go to India. You don't always have to go to Taiwan. There are opportunities in this country. There are opportunities for youth workers. There are opportunities for construction people and computer program people and law office people and recreation folks. There are all kinds of opportunities for you. As a young person to say, I want to choose. To love the powerless. You know something? You remember the direction that Abraham went and the direction that Lot went? <laughs> you remember that direction? You know why? Many of us want to choose the road that's the easiest, the sweetest, the best. The bestest. Did I get that right? <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. That, that, that one will wake you up. But let me tell you what you have to do. There are a few things we have to do. One is, we have to say, as the songwriter says, to the powerless, I love you because God loves you, and I'll try to love you the way that God loves me. For the love of God is like the deep blue sea. It covers you. And it covers me. I walk along the beach and hear the ocean roar. And it tells me that the love of God is like the shore. Where the waves come in and then go out again, who knows where it starts or where it will end. I love you because God loves you. And I'll try to love you the way that God loves me. For the love of God is like a deep blue sea. It covers you. And it covers me. But you know what we really want to say? 
is we want to tell the powerless someday. And that's the same word that the powerless use, someday. And the powerless are singing another song. Instead of us singing a song that I love you, the powerless are singing a song someday. And I close with the words of the song that the powerless sometimes sing. It says, someday he'll make it plain. I do not know why oft around me my hopes all shattered seems to be. God's perfect plan I cannot see. But someday I'll understand. I cannot tell the depth of love which moves the Father's heart above, my faith to test, my love to prove, but someday I'll understand. Though trials come through passing days, my life will still be filled with praise, for God will lead through darkened ways, but, but someday I'll understand. Someday He'll make it plain to me. Someday when I his face shall see. Someday from tears I shall be free. Someday I'll understand. And believers, we need to say to the powerless that today is the day. Let's pray.